On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Brad Hodges of WH Bradford Cycles in Sacramento, California. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone for about an hour and I talk to somebody in the bike frame building world. I try to help them tell their story from the moment when they realized that they wanted to build bikes and then all the steps along the way as they kind of figured it out, struggled. Uh, maybe some people helped them and they learned about themselves and they, they you know developed and built some sort of brand or company or something. And uh, so I always think that's an interesting story. And, you know, like to talk about the technical stuff and all those different things. So this week, my guest is Brad Hodges, and um, he's been doing Nemesis Project for, you know, since the early 2000 aughts. And then uh, more recently, WH Bradford Cycles. Nemesis Project was more of a small production company with fixed gear freestyle and mountain bikes and uh, and then more recently, he's doing sort of like the, the custom handmade brand that you would see more commonly at a trade show like NABS or something uh, that's, you know, more one-off, onesie-twosie kind of thing. And so uh, anyhow, it's, it's cool to get his story. He's been in the sort of bike industry for a long time and crossed paths with a lot of other companies and uh, some you know, artists and different projects. So it's cool to, to talk to him about those things. At the very end of the interview, we were talking some about uh, his day job lately is making like medical implants and medical tools for surgeons and things, including tools that are made to like machine bone and cut bone inside of your body. And uh, some of that stuff gives me the heebie-jeebies. I had a lot of fun talking to him about it. If you're really squeamish, just be aware that's at the very end of this interview. Uh, where I cut into our recording here, I had just asked Brad about, you know, like the very beginning of everything, you know, how did he know that he wanted to go down this sort of road? <laughs> the honest answer here is that um, I actually knew that I wanted to build bikes sometime around like fifth, sixth grade. And so I just pretty much became so focused that I was going to become a bike builder and I was going to work at bike companies that that's kind of like all I ended up doing. And I approached Alan Brown, the owner of Ozone Bikes, um, uh, sometime around 1988, late 88, early 89, with like a drawing that I had done of a bike. And actually even like set a meeting up to ride down to his office and like show him the drawing and everything. And so that kind of went down. And then I got like a, a flat on the way home, I remember. And I had to go to the bike shop and like, you know, get a tube and stuff. But Alan was like super impressed that I basically had like an almost accurate one-to-one -one drawing of a, of a bike frame that I'd done. <laughs> and so at that point, um, kind of like I started getting a little bit of support and I was just like kind of this crazy BMX kid who was like, I'm going to start a bike company. I'm going to start a bike company. And sometime around right after high school, you know, I'd been messing with designs and we didn't really have like a formal metal shop at my school. And so I hear about all these other builders that had the opportunity to go to metal shop or learn how to weld young. And I never had that, but I had access to like big bike companies and stuff. And so like right out of high school, I ended up just getting an aerospace job and um, doing like customer service. And then I was riding BMX and still messing with my own designs. And then I think it was like about two years after that, I approached Altitude Design, which was mount, uh, Mountain Goats Production Company, 
So Mountain Goat had partnered with APRO, a factory in Taiwan, and they were doing small production. And I had been working in bike shops at that point for like two years. And I approached Jeff Lindsay, the owner of Mountain Goat. Um, we like worked up a BMX frame design that was like actually producible. And I had a prototype made and then they came back with like some stupid high cost for production. And I, there was no way at that point in time I was going to have enough money to pay for them, but I was focused and I had sort of like made enough contacts in the industry, um, through the like meetings up at mountain goat that I was able to kind of keep moving forward and like worked with some small builders in the Bay area, had some more like BMX prototypes produced. And then I ended up buying uh, when I went to like one of the interbike trade shows, I think uh, it was still in Los Angeles at Anaheim at that point in time. And I saw a Helfrich jig, like Gary had a booth there and was trying to hawk jigs. And I was just like, Oh my gosh, this is amazing. And right about that time, my grandfather had passed away and I got like a really small inheritance. And I was able to buy a Helfrich jig new. So my inroads to frame building were looking at it from a production side of things and trying to make prototypes to eventually have mass produced. And after getting the Helford shake, I started doing uh, work, ended up getting a job at Santa Cruz mountain bikes, just doing like production work. But Roscop saw that I kind of had like the eye for production and for, you know, having bikes made and I'd already had like some prototypes done. So I was working at Santa Cruz and working on my own stuff at that point in time. And then I ended up buying a mill from Ross Schaefer and he oh, also gave cool. me a giant surface plate at that point. I, yeah, Ross is an awesome guy and ended up going out to like his Halloween party. And that was right about the time that like Sean from Soulcraft was just starting Soulcraft. I think I remember the, f so well, I met up with Ross. I think I bought the mill and then Ross actually hooked me up with his brother-in-law and his brother-in-law who was living out, his name was Peter Burrell and he was living out in Louisiana and he was the one that was doing, excuse me, <clears throat> like early production for terrible one. And he was also doing some frames for S and M at the time. And so I contracted Peter to do a run of BMX bikes for me. And so we had done some prototypes with Peter. I think he built one frame for me and then I built another frame and I, like Tytech where I lived in, where I lived in the Bay area, I guess I'm going to be jumping around a whole bunch of this. Um, you're going to have to edit this show. I'm sorry. Uh, I've kind of this, my inroads to frame building was that I lived in San Jose and the Bay area at that time was kind of the center to mountain biking and for a lot of mountain biking industry. And so the road that I lived on about two miles down the same road were Tytech's main offices. And so um, I had been building all these BMX bikes. I had like a couple prototypes at the time. And then Tytech was wanting to do a BMX line or at least some, some, com some components. And so they brought me in to kind of like work with their design engineer, Mark P. Fister, and we designed a handlebar and a stem. And then I helped with the marketing side of it. And then we put those parts on my two prototypes that I had and took those to the first trade show, the, the first interbike trade show in Las Vegas. And those were sitting in Tytech's booth as show bikes. So that was my inroads to frame building there was building prototypes for bigger companies to show kind of like new products off at interbike. Mm -hmm. 
What what year would that have been when they did the first one at um the, the, this first one in I, I think I think that was like ninety nine. Okay. And that was also the year that like Sean Walling was walking around with the original Soulcraft prototypes that he built in mm-hmm. the barn behind Ross's house. Yeah, because that would have been around uh, when I interviewed Ross, and so Ross Schaefer started Salsa, sold Salsa in nineteen ninety seven, worked with QBP, the new owners of Salsa, for a year or two, and then he split. And at that time, you know about. Uh, two years or something after 1997, around 1999, was when uh, Salsa stopped production in that part of the country, and Sean would have started doing Soulcraft. That makes sense. Yep. Yeah, and, I, and the, the mill that I bought was actually used for mitering all their stems. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, uh, that's got a so lot of history kind of like in a it. Big, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a big turning point, kind of in like Bay Area bicycling at that point, and I kind of like jumped on. And I had been working for for Santa Cruz at the time and you know, I knew all the guys over there and used to get uh-huh. yelled at by Keith, by Keith uh, a whole bunch for trying to bug him and ask him questions, but he was always busy doing like design work for Trek at that point. Cause we were all located in like the same cannery building. Santa Cruz had one building. Um, what do you call it? Like, uh, Bontrager had another one. And then some of the ex Bontrager employees had like, you know, lofts that they kept their art stuff in. And so it was just a really like kind of hip, um, communal creative spot to be able to go to work to every morning. Yeah. I'm jealous. That sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. That was, that, was, that was a short stint. I didn't work there very long. I think I worked in Santa Cruz for a little under a year. And then I went back to, uh, you know, that's when I kind of really started to do the bike stuff was right after that. So I got, I did the stuff for Tech. I think was working for Santa Cruz at the time and kind of transitioned through that for a couple more months. And then, kind of broke off, left Santa Cruz for whatever reasons. Um, I was still kind of a snotty kid at that point in time. And so there's probably, I think like, I think the actual reason that I, I got let go from Santa Cruz was uh, I took the bullet. Oh, Lofscop sent me to go get a six pack for him. And uh, I basically launched bullet 002, which was the green one that was on the cover of mountain bike action at one point in time off the loading dock and Hans was coming back. And I basically kind of jumped right around Hans and that was sort of my end of check. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, that's a show bike. It was on the front of a magazine. You shouldn't be jumping that. You could have been hit by a Beckman's truck. Yada, yada, yada. Sorry, uh-huh. we can't work with you. Yeah. And I was like, oh. <laughs> Lesson learned. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, uh, I mean, what what else, though? I mean, there's. I, I know you did something called Nemesis Project, or you were involved in something called Nemesis Project, and there was... Uh, maybe a couple other phases of things where, you know, like when did you uh, start doing your own thing? Okay. So yeah, I guess I've been kicking around the bike industry for a long time. Um, I ended up after the whole BMX thing, I've been, you know, making the BMX frames for a while. I also did consulting on like a Japanese mountain bike company called the Mikey cycles right around 2000 had those produced at Kinesis up in Portland. Uh, sold about a hundred frames worldwide. And then, um, those guys were actually like professional graphic designers of real jobs. And they just kind of went back to doing their thing. At that point, I moved up to Oregon to like, just kind of get away from actually trying to like work in the bike industry. And I just wanted to ride for a couple of years and raced downhill and kicked around until right around like 2003, when I moved back to back here to Sacramento 
And at that point, like I really wasn't doing anything. And I had a jig, I had a mill, I had all these tools and I'd actually gotten a job working at a go-kart shop producing go-kart frames. And I was really, it was more hands-on. So I kind of like started to get into metalworking and that's when my boss at the time was saying, you know, Hey, you know, when I was your age, this is when I started buying all these machines and I started building my shop. Maybe you should start thinking about that. And he was showing me how to miter tubes and how to do all, you know, the fabrication work to do go-kart chassis frames, but it also translated into bike frames. Oh yeah. And working at the go-kart shop, eventually I was like, okay, yeah, I want to build a frame. And so took the, took the frame jig down to the go-kart shop, uh, got some true temper tubes mitered them up and ended up building the first nemesis project frame that I took to, I took to interbike that year. And I'd also done some, um, some like design work with Dave Weagle at evil bike company. And so we actually built the three, the three prototype sovereign frames that they displayed at interbike in, I don't know, I think it was like 2003, 2000, 2004. And so I had my first Nemesis project frame in the Sunringlay booth, and then I had also built three frames for Evil. And we all did this at the go-kart shop. And then after that, I, the go-kart shop kind of like fell apart, and he kind of started selling stuff off. I wasn't able to get any of his machines because he wanted a lot of money for his two bridge ports and like the stuff he had. But I ended up moving back into my mom's garage and just kind of being like, okay, I'm going to figure out how to do frames. And that's when I started mitering tubes and building frames out of my mom's garage in, in Folsom at, and that's when we were doing nemesis project and it just kind of took off. Uh, I had a friend that did TIG welding and I kind of just like bumped into him and he was like, dude, I'll weld your frames for you. You know, he used to work at solid and had done production welding for a couple other people here in town. And so he would come over to my parents' house at night and start welding the frames. And we really did it like, like a small company. And so I was, building nemesis project frames and then buying like six inch long travel forks from Marzocchi, like Z ones and stuff like that. And then, uh, I had like a, a drop travel kit and I was tuning suspension forks. So I was selling 24 and 26 inch nemesis project frames really built and designed to be freestyle mountain bikes for slope style and trick riding. And then I was tuning Marzocchi forks and dropping the travel to actually work with my frames and selling kits. And that worked really well for a long time until Marzocchi ended up kind of like going out of business and getting bought by Tineco. And at that point, like mountain bikes were stalling out and Taiwan was flooding the market with hardtails. And so it was kind of hard to sell the Nemesis Project stuff. And I was getting tired of riding the mountain bikes. But there was this thing called like fixed gear and track bikes were really taking (laughs) off, especially here in Sacramento. And I remember just like going downtown one time and just like, I, I built a track frame on our jig and I just kind of like took it to midtown. I was riding around on like a Friday night and it was like, no way. Like everybody was out on track bikes and one thing led to another. And we just ended up like hooking up with a, um, like a bicycle club here in town and kind of like riding track every Friday night with a big group of people. And I was building track frames and, nemesis project kind of transitioned from like this mountain bike company into like a company where we built fixies and Mm -hmm. we were kind of like the fixie company wait so did you guys actually have a velodrome in town or people just were were street riding just street riding like just like gangster track bikes all around town Mm -hmm. you know conversions and 
Sacramento is a real flat town and there is like a lot of like used and old bikes and there's a really strong bike kitchen scene here. And so mm-hmm. it's real easy to kind of like put together, you know, a rideable fixie. And I think fix gear kind of like took off like wildfire here in Sacramento. And that kind of put me in the middle of the, like the fix gear freestyle scene too. Cause a lot of my friends, I watched them trying to do tricks on bikes that were really designed just to be ridden at the velodrome. And up until a certain point, track bikes only had one set geo and it was really kind of like what had been established for njs and then also like current velodrome riding mm-hmm. bottom bracket drop axle to crown height you know seat angle head tube angle they were pretty much all the same on all track bikes up until you know when the fix year scene took off and then the volume cutter was one of the first bikes that came out that kind of had like a more you know relaxed progressive geo but I saw my friends still destroying these bikes. And that's when at one point, you know, we built some 700 C kind of like beefed up track bikes with dropped, um, bottom bracket height. And I saw it going toward 26, but at that point in time, there was only like one other company, the crime that was getting ready to do 26 inch frames. And I'll have to give it to them because they were the first people to do a 26 inch bike with a negative bottom bracket drop. Hmm. But a few months earlier, we built our first Steve one cleaner, which was like the first dedicated 26 inch fixed gear freestyle bike with a mid bottom bracket integrated headset and basically the same geo that's being used on bikes to this day. Wow. And yeah. And so we, we built that bike for the guys up in San Francisco, the narcotics crew. And that was our Steve one cleaner model. We released, uh, couple other like semi-production models before that the track fighter which was 700 c more specific but the steven cleaner was the first like 26 inch specific you know short rear end tight 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 geo steep head Mm -hmm. angle you know like 70 almost basically a bmx bike 73 74.5 head angle you know steep seat tube angle um sub 395 rear end and then like a 22 inch top tube with a mid bb and an integrated head tube yeah so uh you know i I come from more of the like uh road bike commuter bike mountain bike world and so you know i never worked with a mid bottom bracket of course uh that's a bmx bike standard um uh how exactly does that compare to like a bsa or like a like a press fit 40 or something so it's about the same size as PressFit 30. And what mid-BB was, it's actually something that Steve Crandall and the FBM guys came up when they had mm-hmm. um, Jim Bragg, their toolmaker, working for them. Uh, there was another company, Fly BMX, that had created like a PressFit bottom bracket where the bearings press into the, the BB shell, but they were smaller diameter. And what Crandall did is he basically took the same PressFit bearings that they were using for the original American bottom bracket, which has like an aluminum cup that presses into a big, like two inch, yeah. usually by 120 wall sleeve. You know, mm-hmm. it's, I mean, it's a huge thick bottom bracket that they use on American BMX bikes. But he just took those bearings out and made a press fit bottom bracket for that bearing. And that became the current standard. Yeah. And so mid BB is just an, you know, an easily acceptable press fit BB standard that works with BMX strengths. Yeah. Yeah. When you say American standard, that's the, uh, like the Ashtabula, like the one piece cast iron cranks or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the same thing that's on like every beach cruiser uh-huh, and yeah. every kind of like, you know, one piece crank bike yeah. or even like even the three piece cranks which are just an upgrade for that standard. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that, and that, that that and that that 
Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, that's sort of what I thought, but I, I appreciate the clarification because not ever having built a BMX bike, I've always been a little bit curious and not, I guess, not curious enough to actually open a book and look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it, I think BMX was kind of my foray into, into frame building in the bike world. And then mm-hmm. it was the first bike I got was kind of a you know, BMX bike, but I also had a mountain bike my entire lifetime. And even growing up, we had like a really strong mountain biking scene in my neighborhood. Um, I remember going riding with, you know, kids in my like junior high school class. And this was in the, you know, the late eighties. And one kid had like a Bianchi, uh, drop bar cross bike, which his parents had bought him. And we all thought it was kind of funky, but now I'm like, man, that thing was so insanely sweet. Another kid <laughs> had like a, you know, small size stump jumper. And it was kind of like a more of a, you know, maybe a little upper class neighborhood. And so I, I had a, like a, an offshoot Raleigh brand called a reflex, but I got it with a Bontrager fork and a few other cool parts on it. So I was able to kind of spiff up my mountain bike and we all went trail riding um, after school. I remember that was like a big thing. So part of my life was growing up riding BMX and the other part was riding mountain bikes. And so I guess I'd always been, I was always going to gravitate toward wanting to do higher end frames. And I remember as a kid, um, I went to an art show in San Francisco called Bicycles as Art. And this was, again, in the late 80s when the Marin mountain bike scene was just at its peak. And it was at the Bronstein and Quay Gallery. I know if you Google this, there's images of all the bikes up online. But there was bikes from Mountain Goat, Potts, Ritchie, um, Otis Guy, oh, geez, um, Ibis. You know, all the big names and these bikes were done up with amazing paint jobs, amazing builds. There was a couple bikes that were like suspended with cables, like tension cable bikes. Um, I think one of the first Trimbles was there. And as a wow. kid going to this show, it blew my mind. That's... And I think it was at that point that I, that I knew I wanted to become a frame builder. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. That That's part of what helped, you know, for, for me, you know, I grew up, in a rural part of the country. My dad was a farmer. I just didn't really know about bikes as like a serious thing. You know, we didn't have local bike shops. So anyway, you know, like it makes sense. Like if you're exposed to that, if you see that at a younger age, that becomes a possibility for what you aspire to. And I guess that speaks to the value of like, you know, role models and stuff. Um, You know, just seeing ways that you could live your life uh, and which ones speak to you and which ones don't. Yeah. And I think that that show was a a big turning point. I still remember seeing the Cunningham from that show. It was just, you know, one of the most beautiful things you've ever seen in your life. I bet. Yeah. How could you forget that? I've seen a, yeah, a lot of the details on uh, the bikes that I've seen of his are very memorable. And at at that point I was still kind of like an impressionable youth. I, I wasn't super into bikes at that point in time. It was long before I ever got a bike shop job. You know, I was still like eighth grade, that was when I was, I think, I think it was probably right around that time at, at that show when I kind of like tried to finish that bike design that I was doing. And when I approached Alan and when it kind of started everything. Yeah. So yeah, jumping back to the starting point, it was probably the Bronstein and Quay show where yeah. it kind of just like set everything off with me. It, well, and I think that also speaks to the value of like the, the kind of people who take the time to organize and put together a show like that. It reminds me a little bit of uh, the discussion I had with uh, Eric from the 
uh, New England Builders Ball. I'm sure that was a different kind of show, but you know, there's anybody who takes the time to create sort of like a public venue to share the expression of you know arts and culture and and you know cool beautiful things like this. You know, that's going to make it's who knows how big the ripple effect is. It could be massive for all the people that see it and are inspired, and uh, it just makes me feel like I guess appreciation for for the people who do that sort of thing. I I haven't put together a show like that, you know, but uh man, some people have and like thank you to them. Yeah, definitely. The the trade shows are a huge thing. And as a builder, um I know you've touched on this before, but you have to go to the trade shows. Yeah. And I'm I really want to go out to Philly. I just I actually have a like kind of fear of flying and traveling. I've never really talked about that, but <laughs> I I know Steven's a great guy and I actually talk to him a lot and um yeah. I want to come out to Philly and I got to figure out a way to make it out there. Cause that's just such an awesome show. And I've only heard good things. Yeah. It's only like a 40 hour drive. Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, okay. So you, you gave us a lot of the backstory up through, you know, like the fixed gear freestyle thing and nemesis project. And I know, you know, the brand nowadays is WH Bradford. Um, you know, what, what's the, the step in between and then tell us some about what WH Bradford is today. So as I was doing Nemesis Project, that was definitely my my brand to kind of like stir up the bike industry. And when I started that, I mean, I started it, you know, I called that Nemesis Project for a reason. And I think that that company, you know, definitely threw a ripple effect um, through the industry, both like with my attitude at the time. And, you know, I apologize if I pissed anyone else off. But, you know, uh, my attitude and then also the bikes that I built, and we really kind of tried to attack certain genres of cycling and transform those into genres that you could use for trick riding. And that's what we did. We took existing forms of cycling and, you know, turn them into trick bikes, both mountain bikes and fixed gear bikes. Mm-hmm. But after a while I didn't, I, I saw that that brand had kind of like pigeonholed itself. And I had, I, I wanted nicer bikes. That's the whole reason why I started building frames is because I always wanted something I couldn't get. And I built a touring bike and I rode down to Santa Monica, down the California coast. And again, that kind of opened my eyes to, you know, other forms of cycling and just the enjoyment of being able to go ride. And I wasn't riding like trick stuff as much anymore. You know, I was definitely getting more into touring and I thought it was kind of ostentatious to like have a trick brand and sell bikes that you weren't riding yourself. And so I didn't really feel comfortable branding my nicer stuff is nemesis project. And I really wanted something that I could like market and sell a five to $7,000 bike to a doctor and mm-hmm. feel comfortable about that. Yeah. And you're not going to do that with nemesis project on the <laughs> down tube. So, um, I, I wanted to put my name on something that was more my craft and I'd become a much better builder at that point in time. And I wanted to do high end bikes. And so at that point I thought, you know what, this is my shot and I'm going to take it. And, it was also right about that time that my father had passed away and, you know, kind of like, a, sorry, I'm getting a little teary out here. Yeah. That's kind okay. of like an homage to my pop, you know, like, yeah, he gave me a name and I decided to put it on all my product. Yeah. And if you're going to do that, you better make it the best damn product you can. Yeah. And that's what I tried to do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, names are important. Uh, you know, it says a lot about what you're trying to do and what it means to you. And, um, 
you know, I think a lot of times the name gets lost on people or they don't have the context to fully understand it, but you know what it means. And when it comes up and you have an occasion to talk about it or explain it, uh, that can be a pretty powerful thing to talk about. But it, even if it's just what, you know, like what you think of when you see it, I think that means a lot. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I really appreciate like, you know, you aren't your understanding and also like, you know, the opportunity to be on here. Um, oh, let me take a breath, man. <laughs> Damn, you really got me there. Um, <laughs> but also like, I know that you've actually got to spend some, uh, some time on one of my bikes and I wanted to actually ask you about that and oh, what yeah. you thought about, it yeah, was... you know, like my nicer bikes and cause I try to build each bike for the client and for their desired needs. And that was definitely like a cool project bike that I, I yeah. like building. I forgot about that. Yeah. So when I was in, uh, when I was in San Francisco Bay area for a couple days around NABs, uh, I stayed with my buddy, Jeff Tiedekin, who was on the show and he had, uh, a, a, a bike that you had built with SNS couplers, a roll off hub, had the, the Paul clamper disc brakes and flat bars and a dropper post. And it was a sweet bike. I rode that around a little bit for a couple days. I took that around San Francisco, never having been to San Francisco before I rode up what 24th street or 24th Avenue or something, <laughs> which is brutally steep. I almost pedaled the whole thing. There was like one block I couldn't do. And I went up to twin peaks, all these cool like places in this city that I had never been. And, uh, and the roll off is freaking sweet. Uh, I didn't have occasion to use the SNS couplers and the brakes were not adjusted properly at that time. So I can't say that I could make that fair of like a critique of the whole frame, but uh, it was, it was lovely. I mean, what a cool thing to visit somebody in a different city and to have them lend you a bike. That's like pretty much exactly your size and you can just ride around. Uh, it was, it was totally sweet. Um, really. <clears throat> yeah. I had a lot of, a lot of fun on that bike. A lot of fond memories too. And there was a sweet frame bag and I definitely used that. Like my phone kept dying. So I bought one of those, uh, phone chargey things and I <laughs> had some snacks in there. Yeah. Those are, those yeah, that awesome. was, uh, that's like the perfect loner Scott, bike when you're visiting a new city. Yeah, that's actually, it was a really cool bike. We actually built that. So Jeff could take it apart and put it in his plane that he was building or kind of like take it with him. And it was basically, you know, like a cool, traveler slash flat bar touring bike and i think yeah like uh i was i was stoked to see that you were able to go ride that bike when you were in town yeah it was awesome the um the roll-off hub is freaking sweet i mean everything everybody says about it is dead nuts right on like it's really solid there's all the gears shift really nice there's that one hitch between high and low range that's kind of clunky but um you know the rest of the gears are incredibly smooth to shift and then you feel it like it is a freaking heavy heavy piece on the back of the bike and so you like you would not want to trail ride a mountain bike with that if you didn't have to but on a commuter it's not bad uh but it's funny how it's it really does feel like like you have like 20 pounds in your hub or 10 or whatever it is it's it's heavy <laughs> yeah it's it's not the lightest setup out there yeah but it's sweet you know it serves a purpose which is uh serviceability and uh good performance and reliability and all that um so you, you've done a lot of cool project bikes. You told me about some of those in specific uh, for different companies that you worked with to do a, a project for something they were doing. Or um, I'm thinking specifically of that Yeti sort of tribute bike that you made with the, we need to talk about the bending that went on in that. That's crazy bending. Uh, yeah. Like tell us about the nature of a project bike uh, and, and like how you go about that, what you think about when you're doing that. Oh, wow. Um, 
so yeah, I, I guess I have done like a couple pretty cool project bikes or like, you know, I kind of consider them like my art bikes in the past. And the Yeti one is definitely like, you know, the, this, the highest, the, sort of the pinnacle of everything I've done. And I, I think that one got the most attention. Um, it was, we were approaching the Salt Lake city nab show and we were just kind of kicking around the shop. And that was, that was when my welder Joe, um, still actually worked with me. And I was like, you know, we should, we needed, we had some show bikes planned and we had like a pretty solid booth already, but I was kind of just like, let's do something to, to gain some attention. And I was like, why don't we do like a, a modern Yeti ultimate. And Joe doesn't ride. He doesn't know anything about bikes, but I, I, you know, I kind of drew the bike up and then I contacted Cameron Falconer cause I know he has, um, a Diarco bender and he's always willing to kind of like help out on cool projects like this. And so he did the rear loop stays for us. And then I just kind of went with it. And, um, I was hanging out with Jeff a bunch at the time and Jeff helped me machine like a custom clamshell die. And so like we were at his house one night, we machined the clamshell die and then literally drew it up on fusion 360 threw a bar of aluminum in his fadal at the time, made this clamshell die, took it over to Diarco and then basically like ovalized the tube. And we got it to where it looked the way we wanted to. And it had like the profile of the original Yeti top tube. And at that point we kind of knew we could do it. And so I just took it back to my shop and was like, okay, I have one tube, one top tube. So I can't fuck this up. And I went with the design and I started building it, but I had never seen a Yeti ultimate in person up to that point. I had like one photo that I saw on Instagram of a teal Yeti with some purple ring light parts from the back end. And if you, you know, if you Google Yeti ultimate on Google images, it's one of the first ones that comes up. Mm -hmm. So that's all I really had to go by. And I basically just built this frame off of that look, but I wanted to incorporate modern standards, uh, yeah. tapered head tube, you know, current axle to crown, three inch tires, and really make it to be a modern mountain bike, but also be able to give the rider kind of like the fun of like that mm -hmm. old school mountain biking feel. And so I used a Paul Thumby on it so you can have a thumb shifter <laughs> because the, I mean, thumb shifters were awesome. Like when, when mountain biking first started, it was hard to climb, but when you got to the top, you could just slam that thumb shifter down with the whole side of your hand and you'd be in your smallest gear and you could just haul. And that's what I wanted to be able to do on this bike. I just wanted to be able to go ride it. Like I used to be able to ride my mountain bike when I was a kid. Yeah. And I put a turbo saddle on it and Paul, Paul helped me out with like this awesome Grupo, and they, we did like a purple Grupo with, with teal accents on it. And Alec White um, actually gave, got Paul a raw set of hubs before they did their like engraving on it. So basically mm -hmm. I have a set of white, white hubs without the logos accented. So they're just purple. So they actually look like original ringlay hubs. And Alec was super into that idea. That's awesome. And we, we built the bike up and took it to the show and I was waiting for everyone to just kind of hate on it and be like, Oh, that bike's horrible. And it got so much good attention and positive response. And yeah, well, of course, I think still to this day, people love that bike. Yeah, it's cool, man. It's a really cool bike. The especially the bending in the rear end, you know, like it is doing multi-axis bends. Getting it, I mean, even on a bike with like totally straight tubes, getting your rear wheel to center is you know not easy for you know an amateur frame builder. It's it still like takes quite a bit of effort for uh, an experienced builder. But then 
to have like all these multi-axis bends with it's it's just very complicated to fabricate that way and and all the custom elements with you know making the dropouts and uh, having everything come together nice and neat and then fit you know a massive you said three inch tire and all those things so it's a very cool bike i really have like a nostalgia that i don't think there's any reason for it but i just really like the 80s and the 90s so a lot of things that aesthetically (laughs) i think are cool and you know if you like mountain bikes it's just hard to argue with the performance of modern stuff so the idea of something like this or you know i've said that i think it's so cool that you can buy today a bike that steve potts built or a bike that uh uh, Chris Chance built or something that's like actually modern, but that it has this like history and this lineage to it built into it. I think that's the coolest thing ever. So like, uh, yeah, to be able to put together sort of the nostalgia in this old school with, you know, modern performance is very cool. Well, awesome. Thank you very much. That's a, a huge compliment toward that bike. And I really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, yeah, that one was cool. You were told me about some other project bikes, you know, sort of different in scope, ones that you had made for different companies, I think. I'm drawing a blank on... Um... Yeah, back back when I was when I was doing Nemesis Project, well, yeah, there's a lot of them. Um, when I did Nemesis Project, actually, I kind of got into, like, this art bike phase um, in between the mountain biking thing and the fixie thing. Uh, I was actually the second bicycle builder ever approached by the Disney company to build a bicycle specifically for the character Mickey Mouse. Wow. So that, that wasn't licensing. That wasn't a production product. This was something done through Disney consumer products specifically for the character Mickey Mouse. And this was in corporation with the Block 28 art project where they took very famous street artists, um, guys like Slick. Uh, I, gotta, I, I forget all the other guys' names. I, I'm, I'm really drawing a blank here. But um, Slick was one of the big guys. But these are, you know, really well-known graffiti artists and they were able and they were given liberty by Disney to take their, their artistic direction to the character Mickey Mouse. And we, this incorporated into an entire show. And at one point Disney contacted me and said they wanted to have a bike there and they wanted me to style this bike after Mickey Mouse. So, and they were really specific about certain details about this. And so we went through different revisions going down to LA, actually meeting with the consumer products team. And the final submission was maybe a little more like subtle than I wanted, but I understood what they were going for. And we did like white grips to, to basically match his white gloves, yellow pedals to match his shoes. And then a ton of other, you know, artistic incorporations, including even like a laser cut Mickey head as the stay bridge and back. (laughs) And, it got pretty crazy. And we also had to like de-logo the tires because they, they could, none of the parts could have any visible logos on them. Everything had to be, you know, unbranded. Mm-hmm. And we had um, pivotal seats made in Taiwan at Velo uh, for the Block 28 project. And these were actually pivotal seats that uh, me and one of the, the creative designers in Dis- at Disney did. And so I came up with the seat pattern and kind of the colorway for it. And then they added the Disney logos and, kind of did their own take on it and then we had velo make 10 of them and these were like super limited edition actual licensed disney product wow and they were like disney pivotal seats <laughs> so what was the uh the like specific occasion or event that called for the the you know construction of this bicycle it was the it was the block 28 art show okay, and so they show. did a big 
yeah, it was like a huge art show where they had these graffiti artists actually do like graffiti art featuring Mickey on canvas, um, actual like LA, you know, um, like art events where all the news and everything like TMZ was there. Uh, all the artists showed up, you know, the whole nine yards where they do like an actual big art premiere. And then the bike was hanging in the middle. They also had guitars by Fender that the artists had painted. And I think there was like some skateboards and stuff too. So it was, you know, whatever they could put the Disney logo on, including Mm -hmm. like these giant, you know, large scale art pieces that featured graffiti art with Mickey's head and everything. That's awesome. And some of the, some of the pieces were actually really well done too. I mean, it's, it's amazing, you know, how intricate those guys can like get that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Um, you know, sometimes people will do a sort of like art tribute project thing toward, you know, like star Wars or some other, I don't know if you say, I don't know what the word fandom means. I think that would be appropriate anyway. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's like sometimes you want to like uh, make a tribute to something that you really like or care about, or you think is cool. And it's funny because, like, if you're trying to sell something, like if it has the Star Wars logo on it or something, and like Lucasfilm has a reputation for like coming down, like their lawyers will like hunt you down, right? But it's it's cool to think not only did you get um, the opportunity to do this thing for a huge entertainment company like Disney that everybody knows, not only did you get to work with all these other interesting people and stuff, but then on top of that, you're not going to get, you're not going to get in trouble for it. You're actually like, uh, specifically asked to work with them. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the end of the day, we actually got paid and we didn't get sued. Yeah. So that's freaking awesome. <laughs> I, uh, speaking of and, Disney, uh, I saw actually... Moana recently and it was pretty sweet. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and that actually that led into another art bike where we, uh, you know, other companies saw the Disney bike and actually started contacting us and said, you know, can you do like these one-off kind of corporate marketing pieces for us? And so I ended up doing a fixed gear for the toy company Kid Robot, and then they they released that and had it shown um, on South Beach on Collins Avenue during Art Basel Miami Beach, and that was like right at the height of the fixie thing. So that bike had like a you know front arrow spoke kind of like oh, crazy uh, CMYK paint job. So it was, you know, uh, cyan and magenta and uh, basically just all styled out. It had like this giant silver head badge done by one of their artists. Mm-hmm. And I guess this guy does like super expensive bling bling pieces for rappers. His name's Osa from Complete Technique. So if you look him up online, I know he does like crazy jewelry work, but it had like a, an Osa head badge. And we basically, they, they told us we want, they wanted the bike to look like a life-size toy. And so again, I was given sort of this direction and I built the bike and we showed it and it kind of hit really hard. And I think it was a lot of like these art bikes that really pushed me toward, you know, going into like the hand-built world. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess coming from like, you know, the BMX side of things and the production side of things, I'd always seen bikes from a different angle and I looked at the hand-built stuff and I even remember going to like, you know, a couple of the first NAB shows in San Jose and just being blown away by the bikes. Like, like I saw a, a, a tandem that uh, Dave Baum did and it was like, you know, crazy lugs, like adjustable bottom bracket length, I mean, intricate details that were just over the top even mm-hmm. by today's standards. And I was like, there's no way I could ever compete with these guys. I mean, these are masters mm-hmm. and, I guess over time and after building bikes, you know, it got to the point where 
I thought, you know, okay, I could actually start doing this myself. I've done enough of these other bikes. I've done enough of these like crazy project bikes where I can, I can produce a really nice gravel bike or I can produce a mountain bike and honestly charge somebody, you know, what it's worth without feeling like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a scam. Yeah. And I think that's when you, when you really know you have a business model and you can kind of move forward with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to get that body of experience to where things, you know, one thing follows the other because in the beginning, uh, man, it's, it's just so expensive to, just be making practice bike after practice bike after practice bike and you only need so many bikes personally but then to build for other people is complicated and it's kind of hard to like build up that body of experience you know what comes first the chicken or the egg like how do you get that momentum up to where you get enough experience and you're good enough at it that you can legitimately you know charge what you need to and you feel like your customer is getting a good value uh, and yet after, you know, years of doing this more production oriented stuff and, uh, all these collaborations with different companies and whatever, you got to a point where, um, the, the bike, you know, fabrication was something that you knew pretty well. And the bike world was something you knew pretty well. That seems like a pretty cool way to get into the sort of higher end, um, stuff, you know, custom stuff. Thanks. Yeah. It's, it wasn't really, I guess the path that every after listening to other episodes, it's not, I realize it's not the path that everyone else took, but I was, yeah. I was really fortunate to be able to do that. Well, it seems better in some ways too. You know, I think there's advantages to that because it, to, to go from like not being much of a fabricator or not being like a bike design expert or not having a whole lot of business experience, like a lot of us have when we get interested to go from that to then trying to uh, sell a product for, you know, like the high end of the market that's kind of a big leap to make. And if you really care and if you really try, uh, you know, your heart's in it, then you're probably going to make something that's pretty good. And you're, you know, you're probably going to, you know, try to cover your, your, your customer's needs pretty well, but, uh, it just takes a lot of experience to, I think, really be great at it. And it's just a, it's a trick to, to, to do that jump. So I think there's advantages to, you know, having, having a lot of years of similar kind of experience before you go into that high end custom stuff, if you can, if you can find a way to do that. Yeah, either like working for another builder or yeah, even, you know, bike shop experience. Yeah, anything you can in the bike industry to kind of like cut your mm-hmm. teeth. I mean, if you yeah. if you want to become a frame builder, learn everything you can about frame building and just don't stop until at some point you don't have any other choice but to like <laughs> lock yourself in your garage yeah. with your jig and a mill and make a dang bike. Yeah. Yep. Um, so I wanted to ask you some about Sacramento. I mean, it sounds like you've lived in the Bay Area and Santa Cruz and Oregon, and uh, I know you're in Sacramento area lately. Um, but you know, in the places that you've lived and where you live now, um, you know, I know like Blue Collar Bikes is in uh, is in Sacramento, and you know the Squid Bikes crew, and there's Nab Show comes around from time to time, and so like um, being where you're at, what you know, what is that community like, and how have the different people in you know, your part of the country influenced you and, and helped you? Oh, wow. Um, so I think I, I definitely had, uh, well, I grew up in the Bay Area in, in like Cupertino, actually right next to Apple World Headquarters. And then, you know, Santa Cruz is close to there. So I was, you know, driving over the hill every morning to work there. Lived in Ashland, Oregon for a while as like a kind of bike bum and rode Mount Ashland. Um, but Moving to Sacramento, it I guess with the the economic climate in in California, a lot of people right around the 
uh, early 2000s started moving up from the Bay Area to the Sacramento area, and it kind of became like this, you know, a new community. But when I got here, one of the first people I met was Robert from Blue Collar, and he was, you know, he automatically reached out. Um, I still remember the day I met Robert, and, uh, you know, he was a, he's always been a great resource. Uh, Ventana Mountain Bikes is also here in town. Mm-hmm. And so Sherwood and Teresa have always been, you know, um, kind of like mentors to me. Um, I always, you know, I can't thank them enough for everything they've done to kind of like get me to where I am. They still help me. Uh, they do my powder coating. Their shop is right across the street and like three blocks down from mine. That's awesome. And so, yeah, it's, it's super cool to be able to kind of like even just go over there and talk to Teresa because she has a wealth of like business management knowledge and mm-hmm. she runs that place so tight and she's so good with what she does uh it, it you know again she's just a great resource in the area robert from blue collar again he's an awesome guy i mean you know he's the perfect guy to call when you wake up in the middle of the street with a broken arm and he's the only one you can think of because <laughs> he was the one that came scrape me up off the road uh, thank you robert and there's other builders steve rex i remember when i first moved here to town um i was living downtown with my girlfriend at the time and we used to go into Rex's shop because we were both super bike geeks and just kind of like drool over the Rex bikes. And we saw a seven tandem there one time. And I remember Rex just being like, it's only titanium. We were all, that was like one of our little inside <laughs> jokes, but it's only titanium. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. So it's, it's a great spot. Like, uh, I think I definitely got lucky moving here and, um, it's also, it's really easy to be able to kind of, well, I don't want to say easy. It's, it, it's a little bit, I guess I, maybe easy is the word. It's a little bit easier to be able to kind of afford to have a good lifestyle here than say the Bay area where yeah. as Pete pointed out, you know, like it's, it's a, it's a rat race down there and you can't slip or you're going to, you're going to fall pretty quickly yeah. around here. Houses are more affordable. I can get shop space for, you know, well under a dollar a square foot. Um, I have a 2,500 square foot shop and warehouse um, with a business license and liability insurance. So there are, upsides and downsides to like running your business like a real business you know you have to kind of think about well do you want to take on the rent for shop space do you want to take on the liability insurance and the extra responsibility but at, the, at that point you have space to be able to buy extra machines and mm-hmm. to be able to expand your operation when you're when you're working out of your garage you can really only have like a welding table maybe one mill and your frame jig, you know, unless you have like a two car garage and you want to really dedicate that just to frame building. And then yeah. you're still going to have to wire your house up for, for better power because, you know, you don't want to be running extension cords in and flipping an extension cord off your dryer circuit for every time you need to run mm-hmm. an operation. Yeah. That's not the greatest thing to do. Yeah. I, I think about space all the time. It's like a perpetual freaking challenge and you know i have bigger machines that are heavier they have bigger power requirements that don't fit through like a residential door you know throughput of material where you might have hundreds or thousands of pounds a month coming in and out and so it's kind of a different thing than bikes at the sort of handmade scale because a bike you know the cardboard box is kind of big but the the package is not that heavy actually the tubes coming and going the dropouts coming and going you can walk all that stuff through just like a, a standard you know entry door pretty easily you just need to be able to get your machines in and so i think there's a a really valuable discussion to be had about you know like do you go with the low overhead of of something like doing it in your own space or there's a lot of benefits to being 
in a proper commercially zoned space, you get a discount on the uh, the shipping when, you know, like shipping to a, a business is cheaper than shipping to a residence. And, uh, you know, yeah. if you want to get an account with something like QBP, you need to be very uh, legitimate. <laughs> and uh, there's just a lot of stuff like that, you know, when you're trying to make professional relationships, impressions on customers and stuff. Uh, th there's, you know, huge cost savings by doing it out of the place that you also live if you can make that work. But that doesn't always work. Or if you have a bigger operation where you have like employees or something, like imagine working from home out of your garage and you have somebody that comes in and helps you. And then uh, you want to take a vacation and you want them to like keep working like they're going to be like in your house when you're trying to relax <laughs> like that'd be super weird. You know, it's there's there's something to be said <laughs> about a separation, I think. And um, it, it's just a space is so important. You know, you can't do any of this stuff without a space. And so um, I, I think about it all the time. <laughs> Honestly, I think about yeah, it all the time. <laughs> I, one of the funniest things I've heard on your on all the episodes I've listened to was Paul talking about the house that he first had yeah. starting off and <laughs> how he had the tumbler in the, in the closet and he had to cut the floor out of it to put it on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, that, that's the reason why you get an industrial space right there. So you don't yeah. have the tumbler in the closet. Yeah. You know, something I was thinking about, yeah, I talked to John Coletti on this show and he has a space that's actually like a, a live work space. And so upstairs is a nice apartment. Downstairs is a nice shop. And to me, that's John's space is, Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, John's space is, is is probably about the coolest space you could ever be building bikes out of. Yeah, and I love John's. I love John's space. So uh, I I've talked to some people about like, it, so, like the idea of a live workspace, right? Like if you just rent like a commercial, you know, like an industrial warehouse space, you are not allowed to live in it. There's like almost nowhere in the United States where you can legally, like the zoning is so restrictive between live spaces and workspaces. And unless it is specifically set up for that and somebody has gone through all the red tape, like it is, it's not legal, generally speaking. And so anyway, you yeah. can sneak you can like secretly live in that space. And there's a lot of issues with that. Cause if you get caught, then you're sort of homeless or evicted and like all these things. But anyway, the thing that I realized when thinking through it is that I feel like I don't mind if my shop is in my house, what I mind, like, I don't want to live in an industrial park. Like, I don't want that to be my home. Like the thought of going out to walk my dog at 11 PM before bed for her nightly walk in an industrial park and then going back into my shop in like a secret bedroom that nobody knows about and I can't get in trouble for. <laughs> that is like the saddest thought. Like, I don't want to do that. But like, it's it's a shame that in our country, the way that zoning is and stuff to whatever, uh, you can't more easily just like live where you work. Uh, for the people who work is their passion and where it doesn't involve other people. You just work by yourself and you have a relatively modest collection of machinery and stuff. It, it would make a lot of sense. And there's just not many options for that. Yeah, that's true. So uh, the John space, as you pointed out, is actually zoned as a live work site. Yeah. And that, that area of Santa Cruz actually specifically the, the Swift street area has a couple other live work complexes and, Every time they put one of those in, you know, they, they go extremely quickly, but also they have to go through a ton of work with the city to be able to get those places in there. And it's not as easy as just putting in a house in a normal residential area or just putting in an industrial site. And I know that, you know, even after when John got his spot, they were going to do a couple more buildings and they actually stalled out after finishing John's building. 
And I think now they're finally just starting on like the second or third one because it was that it's it's that you know difficult to really get each one zoned in. Yeah. 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 It, it infuriates so, me. That, I could talk about space frustrations for two hours, but let's. let's <laughs> uh, uh, we probably should. I, I, but yeah. Sorry. We yeah we probably shouldn't do that because I'll, I'll start talking about my my horrible move and other things. But no, it, it's also good to have a separation between your work environment and. Yeah have a place to go that is home yeah you know even if it's a, a small apartment where you only go to like sit and sleep and shower have mm-hmm. that space and you know maybe think about it is it more worthwhile for you to have your industrial space and have a cheap apartment and kind of like toggle it and if you have to live like a dirt bag live like a dirt bag you know mm-hmm. it's not that bad yep uh i wanted to talk some about paint and paint relationships i'm thinking of a couple of your bikes i think there was one that had sort of like a it, the way I'm remembering it, it reminded me of like a World War II sort of like um, uh, like naval ship with the with the teeth and the shark mouth thing painted on it or something. Am I remembering that correctly? Yes, yeah, the, that was the gravel shark bike from the last NABs here in Sacramento. Yeah, um, paint relationships again are a huge thing that any builder you know needs to work on. Um, yeah. If you're just going to go with powder coat you need to be able to find a good powder coat vendor. Um, you know, you, you don't want to have somebody that's going to like tear through your bike or, you know, get yeah. dents in it or anything like that. And from coming from a production side of things, I worked with powder coaters early on and a lot of my nemesis project or all my nemesis project bikes were powder coated. Um, I still get bikes powder coated today, but I, you know, every problem you could ever imagine I've, I've gone through with vendors. I've had to switch vendors and when I started doing the WH Bradford stuff, I knew at that point in time that wet paint was a very big thing in the bike industry, yep. or at least in the hand-built world. And I kind of like worked with a few various wet paint artists out there, and I, I sent frames out to like all the top guys, and I got bikes back. And I, you know, I found one vendor that I really love working with. Um, he's super easy. I send him the craziest like crayon sketches like over <laughs> bike CAD pdf printouts i'm just like here make it look like this i literally color the bike in with like with crayola colored pencil i draw little details on it i send it to and this is eric at Colorworks. i'm gonna have to give him a shout out on this one mm-hmm. um and eric every single time nails my bikes and That's they awesome. are perfect his, his quality is perfect his turnaround time is quick uh i mean his the, the paint lines, the, you know, the trimming, everything is exactly the way that I want it. And again, this is because I've worked with Eric and he knows kind of what I want. He, he worked with me to feel me out for what I wanted. I was very specific about, you know, what I wanted to see in an end product. And I think, you know, both of our, both of our, you know, requests kind of like aligned. And so it's a good relationship. Um, I know other builders, you know, have great relationships with other painters and that's, that's what you need to do. A lot of yeah. this business is developing personal relationships to strengthen, you know, your product. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Cause I mean, you can't, you can't do it alone or I mean, you know, in some, in some ways, maybe, maybe you can do more than most other people do, but it, it just, it adds years and years and years to like the learning and development curve to tool yourself up, to do all these things, to learn the skills. And at the end of the day, it's just, um, it's just not practical for, for nearly all of us to think that we can do everything ourselves. I mean, you know, even if, uh, even if you did almost everything in house, what are you like mining and, and, you know, forging and drawing the tubes and all this, you know, no, you're not like, 
Just like uh, focus on, I, I like to think that, you know, you should do the least amount of things you need to, to best, you know, serve your customer's needs. Something that I do is get all my material saw cut whenever possible. I could do it myself, uh, but it's just not, you know, it's not something I specialize in. And there are other people who are really good at it who will do it. And similarly, you know, like you can paint your own bikes or, you know, you could make your own like head badge castings or you make your own dropouts or all sorts of things. But if it doesn't help you better serve your customer or make a better product, um, you know, I would I would probably say it's not the wisest thing to do. However, you know, this whole industry is not just about making logical, rad, rational decisions. It's also just it's satisfying to make stuff. So I guess I, I, I relate to that, too. Yeah, I don't think that any of us would be doing this if, you know, bike building was easy. We yeah. probably approach this because it's hard and there's a bit of a challenge. Yeah, no. Um, conquering yeah. the beast, you know, like if it, yeah, if it was easy, uh, if it was easy, it wouldn't be nearly as satisfying to finish that bike. Definitely. It's, yeah. But the, the, I think the end product, you know, I, I try to make a bike that kind of speaks for itself. I'm, I know I'm one of the builders that kind of flies underneath the, like, I don't know, the radar out there, I guess, so to speak sometimes. And, I just want, you know, if people see one of my bikes in person or they see it online, I want them to kind of be like, wow, that bike stood out or that bike's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, it's, you know, it's a flashy paint job or it's like putting jaws on the, the front of the bike. Other times it's <laughs> just making the bike really subtle. And, yeah. you know, a lot, a lot of my customer bikes are one color with one color logos. And I think those bikes are just as sexy as like any of the crazy bikes that I've done. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. There, there's a difference too between a bike that stands out at a bike show surrounded by other handmade bikes or like a bike that stands out on a website in a photo gallery versus just like a bike that maybe is more subdued and simple. But when you live with it every day and you ride it every day, uh, you know, th there's a difference sort of, I think about, um, it's a weird analogy. If you buy an aftermarket stereo for your car, I feel like all of them especially the ones I'm thinking of from like 15 years ago, they're all designed to look good on like a, like a uh, web page or like a catalog page. And I think they're all freaking obnoxious in a car. They're way too bright and they got too many flashy lights and the buttons are too small and you need to look too carefully. Or none, none of the, the colors match like any of the colors yeah. on your dashboard. So it's, yeah, it's like, yeah, but it's exactly. like the whole thing is designed to look good on a magazine page and not designed to like match the interior of your car or to like be intuitive. Or I actually think most manufacturer car stereos are designed better than aftermarket ones. So maybe they don't always sound as good or have as many features, but they definitely like they're just designed more intuitively and they like they look better. I, I tend to prefer those. Anyway, uh, roundabout analogy, which is to say, um, you don't always need flash in the pan to have something that's like enduring, uh, sort of like beauty yeah yeah anyhow um <laughs> uh i got a bone to pick with aftermarket stereos anyway <laughs> <laughs> i was like yeah we're going to stereo talk now this is oh man the the i don't need to get into it but the little chime thing every time i would turn off my car the sony wanted do 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 and there's like no easy way to turn that freaking chime off and you gotta like go into the deep web to try and find some like some hack way of like deprogramming that and it's like i just want to shut my freaking car off and walk away. A hacker for your stereo. it's so silly anyway yeah just 
there's there's something to be I, said that, for that stuff that's like too. it's just like the OEM straightforward standard thing. Like you know, like you don't always want bells and whistles, right? So like that's let that be a lesson to anyone designing anything, whether it's bikes or something else. Like uh, you know, keep it simple. Um, all right. Well, that was actually the. Yeah, that was that's the that's the motto, right? Keep it simple, <laughs> stupid. Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's too easy for me to rant about some of these things, uh, like shop space and car stereos, um, <laughs> or or electronic devices with LEDs, and the LEDs are way too bright. Oh, another another one of my pet peeves. Okay, we're done with it. I'm done talking about it. Moving on. I wanted to ask you about TIG welding because for a long time, yeah, you, you had a hand in running a bike company, making bikes, working with other bike professionals. And uh, you did that. And then uh, it was only a couple of years ago when the guy who had been welding the bikes for you left. And then you took up TIG welding yourself. And so I think that's interesting because a lot of us come at it like enthusiastic to do the fabrication, to learn all the skills and to start making the bikes. And we start from like a fabrication perspective and build it up and figure out business and all these things later. For you, you had a lot of experience running a business, working with customers, shipping product, designing product, uh, mitering tubes, and you learned TIG welding more recently and had to go through that process. And um, and so I think that's interesting. I mean, wh- what was that process like for you? Who was helpful to you as you were, you know, learning the ropes of that process? Yeah, that was, um, so yeah, Joe, Joe had his first kid and left. I had been, I had one guy who worked for me for nine years, um, Joe Bino. And basically I was, I was really concentrated on the machining side of things. I really wanted to figure out the best way to design and build bikes and miter tubes. I didn't want to concentrate on burning my eyes out, learning how to be a TIG welder. There's people that do that. There's guys out there who love welding. You know, if, if you're, if, if, you know, if that isn't something that you're good at, look around, you know, you can find someone in your area who is a welder who would probably love to weld your bikes. It's not the easiest relationship to develop, but Joe and I got this like symbiotic relationship where we were really good and I was fitting tubes and I was even actually starting to pack them at one point and then he was just finished welding the stuff. And we were working through that, but then um, his wife, Kaylin, had their first baby and Joe's just kind of like, I don't have the time to do this anymore. You know, I, I love you, but I can't do this. And he stepped away and... I actually took kind of like a year away from even taking orders or doing anything. And I was like, okay, I got to teach myself how to TIG weld. And I sat down and I started doing it. And it was so humbling at first because I had no direction. And the only real advice anyone gave me was that, Brad, you control everything. And it was like, oh, what, what, what are you telling me? And I just tell me how to lay a bead, you know? And he's just like, you control everything, man. The foot pedal, everything. You, you just got to work with it. And I was like, all right. And it never really made sense until just a little while ago, but I practiced, I got to the point where I'd watch some YouTube videos. I got, I was, I was doing pretty good, but I wasn't able to weld a frame. And every time when I was even doing practice joints, I'd end up blowing holes and stuff. And I got to the point where it was, you know, about eight, nine months in, and I had to get back to work. I got, had, I had some projects coming up. I actually had a bike that I was building um, with the guys that specialized and I was going to have to weld it. And, there wasn't really a choice to like, you know, have someone else do it or not. And my welds were getting good, but they weren't good enough. And I, I had to run up to, to Portland to actually borrow um, an extra seat, uh, seat tube and bottom bracket attachment for my Arctos jig from Oscar at Simple. Mm-hmm. Because I was doing this tandem for Specialized and the way that we were doing it, it's, 
it was a Sequoia tandem and it was, they had like, they had two frames that had, you know, been catastrophically failed one in the front, one in the back. And then they wanted to take the front end and the back end and then basically extend them, put some tubes in between them and make a tandem out of it. And I was like, yeah, sure. I can do that. And so I ran up to Portland to get the other C tube slide from Oscar for my jig and I brought my helmet and I was just like, dude, can you please show me how to lay some beads? I know, I know you know how to weld Oscar. Like, you know, you're the man. Oh yeah. You weld everything for everybody. And I need you to show me at least how to make it through this frame. And he's like, yeah, yeah, come up, come up. So I got up there. I crazy story. I ended up driving up to Portland in the middle of the night. I'd never been to Oscar's house before. And if you've ever been to Portland, there's like Northeast and Southeast and you can have the same address on the same street, but it can be on different sides of the town. Wow. And I've done this before where I've tried to meet somebody for lunch on Burnside and ended up halfway across town. And I'm like, Oh, I was supposed to be on the other side of on other side of Burnside. So Oscar gave me his address. I was about 99% sure I was at the right house, but I wasn't sure. He's like, don't park on my street. We have problems with homeless people park in my driveway. I was like, okay. So I parked in his driveway, went to sleep in the back of my car, woke up in the morning. I got a text from him. Hey, coffee's on. Come on in. I still didn't know if I was at the right house or not. And I was like, okay, cool. So I walk in, you know, hoping I was at the right place. Luckily I was. And that's when Rhea from uh, SimWorks was actually living with him. Rhea was making coffee, sat down, we had breakfast. I guess it must've been something in Rhea's coffee. Cause that is also as magical as anything else. And we walked in, sat down, Oscar laid me to doing some work. He went back in the kitchen to get something done. And by the time he came back, I was laying beads and he kicked me out and sent me home. That's awesome. Yeah, so it's just it was the fact that I guess I trusted Oscar enough to like sit behind me, you know, with my hood on, watching me weld, and have him tell me, "No, dude, do it like this." Mm-hmm. And then he set the machine up, and I think a lot of it too was Oscar showing me how to set the machine up properly, yeah, and showing me how to use the showing me how to use the pulser and getting me comfortable with the pulser. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as he saw that I was comfortable, like he just kicked me out the door, and he's like, "Go practice." And <laughs> I went home. I practiced. I was still running the pulser a little bit cold. So I think my first two frames came out like a little bit blobby on the welds. They weren't as like really flat and like harmonic as they should be. Mm-hmm. But as soon as I got the amperage up and my back purge to where I needed and um, got my argon flow up on my, my cup, you just run it. And it's once it really makes sense. And at that point in time, it was kind of like, okay, yeah, you really do control everything. And that's when you understand the foot pedal. That's when you understand when to lay in and get a nice flat beat or when to ease off because you're running your, your, your puddle too hot and you have to run a little bit more filler material in there. And that's, you know, these aren't the easiest tricks to learn. And I think someone else in one of your episodes said, you know, they can show you how to TIG weld in five minutes, but you're going to spend the rest of your life trying to perfect it. And you really yeah. will. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's like a you know you walk you, like a, you you watch somebody uh, lose their balance and catch themselves or something, and it's like in that split second, you know you need you like your motor reflexes are handling all these different muscles and parts of your body, and you know like during the the period of time where you're trying to catch your balance, you know the situation is changing and you're correcting further, and the same thing you know you don't even really realize you it, before you know it you're back up on your feet again or something, and it's the same thing with TIG welding all the time, which is that like, you know, you need to be using your, your, 
paddle foot and your right foot and your left foot and your angle and your your arc length and you know your viewing angle and all, all these things are changing constantly but it's just like you get familiar and comfortable enough with it you don't even realize that you're processing like all these different inputs and outputs at the same time you're just kind of like oh yeah it's getting a little hot oh yeah i need to wrap around you start thinking about other things but in the beginning it's just impossible to imagine processing all that information successfully. It's just, you know, it's, it's hard. Uh, and then, and then one day it's not so hard. <laughs> yeah. And I, just, I, yeah, I don't, I don't say that, doing that it. I don't say that as if I'm so great at it, but that's, that's my understanding of it. And that has been my experience of it. And people like Oscar, uh, you know, lots of guests on the show, lots of people have, you know, just decades more experience than I'll ever have uh, sitting behind a, a welding hood. So. Yeah, that's, and I think uh, it's also good to get welding experience. And it's if you want to like lead in maybe to your other question. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, I did want to ask you then about you know your day job. Lately, you've been working at a sort of um, it's like a medical implant company, right? For like surgical implants and stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah, I make I make surgical tooling for hip implants, and it's like the most now that I've. I, now that I'm privy to that world, it's, oh geez, medical manufacturing is, it's a whole different side of things. We run a machine shop as well as, um, an assembly and, uh, I guess, you know, assembly laser marking. And, uh, we also have heat, uh, in-house heat treating in-house electropolishing passivate. And, um, we run four CNC machines full time. And then we also have three CNC lathes, which run occasionally. Yeah. So it's it's a pretty you know decent sized shop, and what we do is we actually make the tools that doctors use for hip implant surgery. Yeah. I this isn't really something that I was like thinking you know the world that I was going to get into, but um, bike building can occasionally get slow, and I realized at some point in time that I was you know starting to have more adult sized bills and. I couldn't rely on like the frame shop to always pay all my bills. It was supporting itself. It was covering the rent for the shop. You know, I can either put money back into the company or I can pull money out when I need to, but I try to run it like a smart, small business and I don't really want to use it to also pay all my bills. And as you get older, you have to realize, Hey, you know, it's, it's time to become an adult. And sometimes it means going and getting a day job. And I know a lot of people on here have talked about their fact that they're really adamant about not getting a day job. Mm -hmm. or it's something they didn't want to do. It's not the most glamorous work. Um, you know, half my time is also spent in deburr, like shaping stainless steel parts. And other times I'm sitting there welding stainless steel tools all day long. And we get these castings in from China. And sometimes the castings aren't a hundred percent pure. And while we're shaping them, you know, impurities come out and I have to go fill those impurities and we have to be able to grind those welds off and make them look, hundred percent shiny and they have to match the rest of the tool. And then they have to be able to go through a sterilizer without having any pinholes in them. Yeah. So it's taught me how to be a really good TIG welder. Like I was, I was a okay, a good TIG welder and I could do a bike when I started working there. And now I'm a really good TIG welder and yeah. I'm really good at stainless. I'm really good with, you know, filling. And it also teaches you how to kind of like work around problems. And I think that's what I wanted and why I started mm -hmm. looking for like a fabrication job is because I'd sort of like figured out enough stuff to do the bikes and I was getting almost complacent. And I was just kind of like, I wanted a new challenge. I wanted, I wanted to go someplace where I was actually going to have to weld 
and they were going to pay me to weld so that I could actually learn without mm-hmm. having to do it on my own dime. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, that's an awesome way to, you know, take what you've already learned and your, you know, your passion, your experience, and then not only reap some reward from that or put it to use, but then to actually enhance it too. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's a good relationship. I mean, at times it's a day job, but like the other day, I, I remember I sent you a video and I was like, yeah, you know, sometimes I'm welding parts, sometimes I'm assembling stuff. And today they got me cooking chicken. You know, I was out there barbecuing chicken <laughs> yeah. for everybody for lunch. But that's the fun of like working at a small company too, is that, you know, yeah. you can, you can go out there and you can find these niche jobs that are out there that pay really well. And you, you might be somebody who never went to college, but graduated high school, worked in bike shops. And as you're getting older, you know, you need to find something with benefits and retirement packages. And maybe the local bike shop doesn't have that. But mm-hmm. if you're, if you're passionate about metal fabrication, you know, like you said, you know, go ask for a tour at a, at a, at a machine shop. Don't be afraid to start at the bottom and work your way up mm-hmm. and you'd be surprised. You know, you can actually learn a lot and it also transfers back to frame building. You yeah. don't always have to look at stuff like I want to become a frame builder and I'm only going to learn what I need to become a bike builder because that's what I did when I was a kid. And I think that I missed a lot of opportunities to actually, yeah. you know, learn CNC from an early standpoint or maybe become a better CAD drafter than I was, even though I've been taking CAD since I was in sixth grade. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, did I, did you know, or did I tell you that I had a, uh, I have a chunk of metal in my hip. It's probably titanium. I don't know if it's the same sort of stuff that you guys produce tooling for. Did you know that? No, no, I, I heard you broke your hip, but I wasn't sure of like yeah. what type of surgery you had. Well, it's not really so that did, relevant did to this like conversation, a- but uh, yeah, I crashed my bike when I was 24 or something, and now I have a piece of like titanium in my hip forever, and it took me you know, a couple months to fully heal and whatever. It's, I didn't have a hip replacement where like the ball and socket get altered. It was just the femur or the hip or whatever had a like a, a fracture or a break in it, and they had to reinforce it during the healing process because you can't really wrap a cast around. But the point is that yeah. you sent me a picture of this tool that your company produces, which is like... It looks looks like a rotary cheese grater it looks like <laughs> it, it, and it's exactly it's like a hemispherical thing on the end and it looks like it's like a rotary cheese grater like you'd run it on like a cordless drill or something and uh i it, guess you that, do run it on a cordless drill and it looks like something that uh would be used to like resurface the uh the hip socket i guess but anyway when you sent me that image it just gave me chills it just like freaked me out because like <laughs> You know, they put me under during the surgery and I was obviously not conscious of it. And I try not to think about it, but like based on the images I have, the x-rays of the part that's in me, like they were, they were drilling and hammering bone. Like there is no doubt that my surgeon was just chiseling and hammering. And it just like, it just gives me the willies to think about it. So it's, it's, it's alternately cool and also kind of mortifying to like see those tools that you guys make. That's kind of the underlying rule at my day job is that we don't talk about what they're really used for <laughs> because everybody knows, but just focus on the, you know, focus on the, on, on the exterior finish of the part or focus on the form and function. Don't focus on the fact that this thing looks like it should be used for a fighting weapon on Star <laughs> Trek for like some Vulcans, you know, uh-huh. like work coming at somebody with this giant protruding, like uh, they're like, the, the things that they actually use to clean out your bone to actually put the inserts oh into uh, that, like the leg bone one is just this giant arcing, like oh. kind of like spiky, 
chrome stainless thing that I guess the doctors just pound into you to clean out your bone. Yeah. Um, we also make like bone cutters, which are ridiculously sharp. Like they, they, they will trump any type of knife or any type of thing you have out there. And we actually run them on a CNC machine to sharpen them. And then we run them through the electro polisher to actually take the upper edge down to the point where it is as sharp as it can physically get. And even packaging these things, the guys have to wear safety gloves and they still cut themselves regularly with them. They're dangerous. That is yeah, brutal. and that, that rotary, that cheese grater thing I sent you, the, the boomerang image of actually, it runs on a on like a basically like a, a pole with a handle on the side of it, and you run like a cordless drill through the end of it, um, the same way that you know you showed how to like to move your, your manual mill table up and down. Mm-hmm. They run like a half-inch drill driver through that thing so they can get torque on it. And a lot of times... The drill, like the the driver chuck that you have to run through the center, it's surgeons will break because they shove this thing into your hips so bad, oh. and they have to cut this radius so that they can put the hip insert in there. Yeah, you that's want to edit all this gross stuff out of your show. This is, <laughs> it's pretty brutal. Yeah, I was give people a little warning at the heads up at the beginning that it ends in a <laughs> grotesque description of bone saws. It's cool. I do think it's cool and I do think it's fascinating, but I also, uh, I cannot relate to surgeons or like surgeons who deal with bone. Well, surgeons. Yeah. No, I just, I'm not cut from the same cloth, man. It's too much. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's also, we do, we do custom tools as well. And like the past two days I've been making a custom set of tools with our, you know, you said they, they, the surgeons hammer these things into your legs and, uh, our, our, our normal tools have pretty big strike plates on the bottom so they can hit them with hammers and get them in the leg. But there's two doctors that call us for like these giant strike plates. And we're just like, these guys must be blind, like Coke bottle sized glass blind. Are you it's, sure it's that it's dirt. not the guy from the saw movies <laughs> and it's actually a surgeon? <laughs> did you, did you check his references? <laughs> no, we don't. We sell to anybody. So, you know, give, wow. give me a call. Shoot me a DM. I'll give you some some black market surgery tools. Damn. Yeah, I guess they're not probably. Well, they might be regulated. I guess if you wanted to use them for like billable healthcare in a hospital and you were a practicing physician, you'd. Yeah. Anyway. Well, I. Uh, I think that's enough discussion of bone saws, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We get we can you can edit most of that out if you want no, to. That's fine. not bike related. It's real. No it's bikes, good. No it's good. Uh, <laughs> Cool, man. Well, anyway, I really appreciate you taking the time and getting to know your story a little bit better and the bikes that you did. Um, it's cool to see the progress no, that you're making on stuff and, uh, and the shop that you have built up and yeah. So thanks a lot, man. No, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it.